Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Allison. And I'm Erica. And before we start, please be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying BC the Beatles, please feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And also don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And don't forget, you can always email us at BC the Beatles. It's because the Beatles, spelled BC the Beatles, at gmail.com. And this is our second special episode of Beatles Book Club, hashtag Beatles Book Club on social media, where every month or so we read a different Beatles book and invite our listeners to read along with us. And during these episodes, we discuss the book and answer questions and comments that we get via social media or email. This month, though, is particularly special because we're so excited we have the author of this month's book with us to discuss the book. So exciting. He is a doll. He's the best. We love Rob. We met him just about a month ago at uh, the White Album Symposium in New Jersey, and he immediately agreed to come on the podcast, and he is just the best. He's he's so fun. His book is amazing, and you probably know him, Rob Sheffield, as a columnist for Rolling Stone. He's been writing about music, TV, pop culture there since 1997, but he's also the author of two national bestsellers called Love is a Mixtape, Love and Loss, One Song at a Time, and Talking to Girls about Duran Duran, One Young Man's quest for true love and a cooler haircut um he's also the author of on bowie a great book obviously about david bowie and this month's book dreaming the beatles the love story of one band and the whole world and he lives in brooklyn with his wife we're gonna welcome rob in a second but before we do this book is a collection of essays telling the story of what this ubiquitous band means to a generation who grew up with the beatles music on their parents stereos and their faces on t-shirts what do the beatles mean today Why are they more famous and beloved now than ever? And why do they still matter so much to us nearly 50 years after they broke up? Dreaming the Beatles tells the story about how four lads from Liverpool became the world's biggest pop group, then broke up, but then somehow just kept getting bigger. At this point, their music doesn't belong to the past, it belongs to right now. This book is a celebration of that music, showing us why the Beatles remain the world's favorite thing and how they invented the future we're all living in today. It's a book about not only the Beatles, but the Beatles through the lens of the fandom, specifically the second and third generation fandom. Rob himself is a second generation fan, and he, in addition to being super enthusiastic about the Beatles, he really looks at how the Beatles themselves shaped his life and the lives of fans and the lives of so many musicians who were consciously or unconsciously motivated and inspired by them. Right. And obviously, this is something that we really identify with ourselves, not being first generation fans. And something that is really special about the book is it speaks to our experience and experience of people like us and how, as he says in the book, our Beatles have outlasted their Beatles, meaning the Beatles Beatles, which is really fascinating. So without any further ado, here is Rob Sheffield. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh, we're stoked. (laughs) We've been talking about it like excited teenagers in 1964 all day. (laughs) Yeah, we sort of started the party early. Hope you don't mind. But we, yeah, we got on here early and we're just like, okay, we've got to save it for the the conversation. But I just want to talk about this thing really quick. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. That sounds perfect. The book is so good. I just was uh, rereading it last night and just sort of going back over it and laughing at parts and just being like, yep, this is me. I feel this way too. Like, this is totally Paul. (laughs) Very like George. Bitchy wizard mode. I'm going to get that tattooed on my forehead. 
Yeah, and you mentioned Freedom Rock. I can't even handle it. <laughs> oh my God, Freedom Rock that, that haunted us for years, right? Right? It was on every day. Is it Freedom Rock, man? Well, turn it up, man. <laughs> turn it up, man. Yes. And, and of course, we all thought, I'm never going to turn into that person. Uh-huh. You know yeah. what? I, I still hear Horse With No Name after Fire and Rain because that's the order it was on in the Freedom Rock commercial. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> I'll never get rid of Freedom Rock. Oh, my Rock. God. The lingering traumas of Freedom Rock. But you know what? That was one of the most wonderful things about this book was that it was from a next-gen point of view. And this is one of the things we were talking about, like, we consume the Beatles through these like intermediate things, like the complete Beatles. Like we heard these songs through things like Freedom Rock and to hear somebody talking about the Beatles, writing about it in that way and using those references was such a connection for me as a second gen fan. It was so cool. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. That means, that means a lot to me. It's funny how we grew up thinking that, you know, we kind of missed the real story because we weren't there for the first part of it. And it's like, no, actually we, we had the real story. It was just a different story. Well, I mean, some, you know, first gen fans would agree with that, you know, that we did miss it. But you can point to this book and say, no, I mean, here are all the reasons why the Beatles are still current and why, you know, our story is just as valid as yours, even though we didn't see them on the Ed Sullivan show in real time. Absolutely. Let's just get started here. So, Rob, we all know you, obviously, from your writing and from Rolling Stone and your other books, which are wonderful. So what's your Beatles story? You talk in the book about discovering them through help. So it's super fascinating. That was sort of your gateway. Yeah, Help was my gateway, which it's not really supposed to be anybody's gateway. The first time I saw Hard Day's Night, I thought, this is the Beatles? Why are they just in one building the entire movie? Why, why aren't they like flying around the world having adventures in the Bahamas or the Swiss Alps? Why aren't they getting blown up at Stonehenge? Love it. <laughs> but Help, I still remember seeing, you know, and it begins with... That black and white footage of the band singing the song Help together and their black turtlenecks. And it's funny. And I still remember such a vivid image. Like, I was like, wow, this is like a group of young men who are talking to each other about these intense feelings that they're having. And the way that the Beatles sing to each other in that song, the way, you know, they're sort of encouraging each other to sing and tell their story together. That was just so mind-blowing for me. Help actually plays a really large part in my own coming to the Beatles. So I came to the Beatles through the Yellow Submarine soundtrack, not even the soundtrack, the song track, the blue cover, uh, which is pretty <laughs> random. I became a fan in 2000, which <clears throat> I know sounds ultra modern, but back then it was like a wasteland. So I liked this album. And then I went to the library to see what I could get of the Beatles. And the only thing I, I could find was help on VHS. So that was my like visual introduction to the Beatles, which is pretty fucked up too. Oh my gosh, that is absolutely great. <laughs> and I feel the opposite than both of you because I loved A Hard Day's Night. That was my first. And then I saw Help and I was like, what is this? They're in color. Everything's weird. They're all over the place. And I couldn't get into Help for like 10 years after that. They're really different movies and really different personalities. For me, Help, I, I just thought, wow, everything on screen, everything about this music and about these people, I just want to be part of it. What do you think attracted you to that? What made you obsessed with the Beatles? I was a 70s kid, and 70s kids, we loved the Beatles. My sisters and I loved the Beatles, and it's funny, our mom and dad would joke with us, you know, don't you know that band doesn't exist anymore? Don't you know they broke up? Don't you know they're finished? And that was something that was very strange for adults, I think, all through the 70s, that the Beatles were still so alive for those of us who were little kids. 
And it was certainly very frustrating for the four Beatles themselves who kept releasing solo albums. And Ringo would say, doesn't anybody want to talk about my new single, Cooking in the Kitchen of Love? Why do people still want to talk about the Beatles? You know, and it was strange and bewildering for the Beatles, too. There was, there was really no map for them. But we were the first generation that came to it with the whole story in place. So growing up with the Beatles after the fact, it meant that we had the whole story with us. When you have the story presented to you as a complete unit, as opposed to growing along with it, you kind of pick and choose your Beatles as you personally change and evolve and have different life circumstances. Rob, you talk about that a lot in the story, especially with relation to, to girls and some of the more complex emotions that the Beatles ended up expressing as they went on. What do you think about that versus the, you know, living in time with the Beatles experience? If I'm being totally honest, I feel bad for people who heard the Beatles in the 60s so they didn't get to have the red and blue albums the way that we did. I was like, oh, these poor poor souls who had to listen to Eleanor Rigby and then they had to wait a whole year to hear Strawberry Fields Forever. You know, like right? I, that would have been torture. It's funny, the red and blue albums were so, so, so crucial. I still love them. I still listen to my copy of the blue album. I was terrified of A Day in the Life. I thought that song was just too scary for me. So I would always have to lift the needle to put it to the end of A Day in the Life. So after Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, I would lift up the needle and, and I would try to put it to the beginning of All You Need Is Love <laughs> without getting any of the scary chord at the end of A Day in the Life. Oh my God, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I felt the same about Rocky Raccoon. I could not listen to it for like five years. Really? It freaked me out. Really? I don't know. There's something about like his his like Western voice that I didn't get and it weirded me out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's one of my favorite songs. I love it so much. And it's one of the highlights of the white album for me for some reason but then i could not that's so funny i wish yeah. i had a scary track to contribute i think i was brave <laughs> we're so brave i'm we're so, so brave, brave. <laughs> um when you came through yellow submarine allison i'm just curious was it just the song track or or did you not see the movie or did you see the movie it was the song track i don't remember i saw the movie later oh you know what yeah i do remember also getting that from the library i definitely got help first but then i got yellow submarine but i loved it i mean i i was i grew up an artist i was really into art and i remember just watching especially the eleanor rigby segment just being obsessed with the visual of liverpool it's like you know it's like dusty and dark black and white animation and i yeah i loved it i don't know maybe maybe i am like really messed up <laughs> <laughs> but i yeah i didn't come through the soundtrack though so that may have if i had done that i may have uh had a different sort of sense of scariness, you know, like with George Martin's score. True. The soundtrack has songs from all over the period, though. It's like, oh, here's a friend who reminds us of Nowhere Man, and they do Nowhere Man, and then they do. As you know, the song I love from the Yellow Submarine movie is It's All Too Much. Mm -hmm. I agree. That, that to me is the great the great lost Beatle jam. Our second episode was actually about Yellow Submarine, and I had never seen it before. And what was that in July when it came out again? August? Yeah. I had never, ever, ever seen it, which was so strange because wow. I thought I'd seen almost everything. And I realized, oh, I never watched this thing like ever. Wow. What was it like for you watching it as an adult for the first time? It was so trippy. And I went in, I didn't read a thing about it. I didn't want to know any more than I already did. Sometimes it was like, wow, I'm really getting into this. And sometimes it was like, what? what is this? But for the most part, it was trippy and it was cool. And like, I think I actually squealed when the real Beatles showed up because I didn't know they were coming at the very end. <laughs> wow. And it was amazing, but it was so much fun to like now have a new Beatles experience. I hope there's more things like that that I haven't seen. It was so good. 
Did you see it, Rob? Yeah, I did, and it was much better. I mean, Yellow Submarine was never, for me, as huge as A Hard Day's Night and Help. So going back and seeing it this summer for the first time in many years was a uh, really fun discovery. I was surprised how much of it had totally never sunk in for me. I think that's one of the wonderful things about the Beatles now and being able to keep reliving it over and over again is that as you change and as you mature and your life changes, you hear things very differently and you can almost discover things brand new that you've known your whole life just because of the place you're coming from as you experience it again. Absolutely. And I'm still learning things constantly about them that I didn't know and were just obvious and that I just never thought about before. Tim Riley mentioned something a few weeks ago at the symposium. He had this great point about while my guitar gently weeps, that it's this guitar manifesto, but it begins with a piano solo. And I was like, wow, that's actually something that any of us could have noticed over the years, but that's something that like I had just never noticed before. Being a Beatle fan kind of prepares you to spend the rest of your life getting surprised by stuff that you thought you knew or you thought you understood. For me, there's this thing in the new White Album box where uh, there's a photo that I've never seen before of the recording session for Martha, My Dear, and Paul's at the piano and George is on the guitar and you can see all the trombone players sitting in their chairs and with their bow ties. And the photo is taken by Linda McCartney a few months before she became Linda McCartney. She was still Linda Eastman at that point. But just completely mind-blowing. Linda was in the room when Paul sang Martha, My Dear. That completely changes my whole worldview. I have to go back and relive, you know, my entire life's experience with Martha, My Dear. Like, I've always, always loved. And I was like, wow, like, Paul, the love of his life was actually in the room when he sang this song. And she was part of that. And you talk a lot about Martha my dear, obviously in the book, um, and Julia, which, as you know, we talked about at the symposium for our live podcast, which just went live last week. But yeah, I it's so fascinating because obviously you have such a deep love for that song. And now it's like just another kernel that just twists it just a little bit more, you know, to make it interesting. Yeah. And sharing the Easter demo version of Julia where Paul's in the room when John is singing this song. To me, the essence of Julia has always been it's the song that John doesn't want to share with any of the other Beatles. It's Mm -hmm. the only Beatles song that's just John, and that this song is so private and so personal, so scary for him that, that he can't even sing it around the others. And to hear him begin the demo with like, hey, Paul, like, you know, and they're talking about the song, that completely blows my mind. And even hearing the, the outtakes on the box where he's, you know, singing it for George Martin, and you could tell he's really intimidated and scared. And he says, oh, it's very hard to stand here and, and sing this song, you know. And George Martin says, well, it's a very hard song, John. But <laughs> right. And John's like, trying different, like, methods of, like, picking it and playing it. Yes. Part of it. You know, we grow up loving these songs all our lives, and yet, you know, we still learn about them. And, and giant artifacts, like, I love that you just saw Yellow Submarine last summer, that, you know, there's still so much to discover. What made you write this book out of all the different kinds of Beatles books that you could write? This is a much more personal book, I think, than than many of the biographies and other books that we see. Yeah, well, I wanted to write a book about the Beatles that wasn't about the 60s, you know. I wanted to write about the Beatles that wasn't about something something beautiful and glorious that happened in the long ago past and that we were only getting echoes of it over the years. I want to write about the Beatles as something that's happening right now because the Beatles are happening right now. And it is constantly bewildering and bizarre to me that the Beatles keep growing, keep changing, keep mattering to people who you know are just coming into the story now. And to me, that's the most fascinating and, and for me, lovable thing about the Beatles. It's one thing that they were the biggest band of the 60s, but with 
the crazy thing is that they're the most popular band now and that they're more popular and beloved now than they were back then. I think one of the most interesting parts of the book is when you go through 26 songs of different genres that are influenced or Beatles-esque in some way, which is so fascinating because it's not just the Beatles or the Beatles through your eyes. It's the Beatles story through the Muppets to the Bangles to Kendrick Lamar. And it's a reflection of how the Beatles influenced each of these artists. So their Beatles story too. And it's just, it, it just ripples throughout, not just our fan community, but in so many places that we never would really even look for it. Yeah, it's really amazing. It's funny. I still remember when I heard that Kendrick Lamar song where He's talking about Paul McCartney's Control, which you would only guessed rhyme on that. I guess it was officially a big Sean song and Jay Electronic is on it too. And I still remember I was walking down Sixth Avenue in New York and listening to that on headphones and I heard Kendrick say, blessings to Paul McCartney. And I said, whoa, wait a minute here. And I just had to rewind and listen to it again. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really badass. It's one thing for Lil Wayne to compare himself to John, but for Kendrick to say like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm Paul. That is completely mind-blowing to me. And that's you know, part of the Beatles story is that they, they go on changing and they go on mutating because their music just keeps growing and keeps reaching more people. I really liked how you also referenced throughout the book people like Taylor Swift, like One Direction, like these people who aren't necessarily part of the Beatles narrative for a variety of reasons. A lot of writers disclude them on purpose because they sort of write them off as not even being in the same arena with the Beatles. But I love how you contextualize the Beatles with these people and juxtapose them in such a way where it's like, okay, well, the Beatles led to Beyonce and Lemonade, you know, could have been a Beatles concept 50 years earlier. I think that's amazing, especially for some people who are still pissed off that Paul had the audacity to collaborate with Kanye. Like, <laughs> it's sort of here. It's like, hey, look, you know, it happens all the time. Yeah. He never wanted to be the kind of pop star who's just, you know, in the past. To me, it's mind-blowing. And to me, like something very much to celebrate that every new generation of pop stars, that they had their own Beatles and their own Beatles canon. And it is, to me, kind of beautiful. I mean, it's kind of natural that for the, especially like for those of us who became Beatles fans after the group broke up and there was this sense, you know, there's this great quote from Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, after Elvis died. And they said, so Colonel Tom, what are you going to do now? And he says, well, I'm just going to go right on managing him. And Elvis turned out to have, you know, that kind of blockbuster afterlife that nobody had had before. But with the Beatles, it's the same thing that it must have seemed to everybody in the 70s. And you go back and read what people were writing about the Beatles in the 70s and, and the songs that people were singing about the Beatles in the 70s. And there's something mournful of like, oh, this beautiful thing. Why did it have to end? And the strange thing is that it, it, it just doesn't end and, and didn't end. Yeah. And one of the concepts you introduced in the book that I really loved is the whole thing of private Beatles versus public Beatles, because I think that's sort of a modern concept, maybe more publicly modern. I think people sort of address it more. But Eric and I were talking before we started recording about how like we'll be out in public and somebody will mention like a very like surface level Beatles fact and we'll have to suppress it within ourselves to be like, yeah, but here's the whole story. Oh my God. Like, you know, we host a Beatles podcast. Like <laughs> I've been reading about this shit since I was like 15 and let me tell you everything. And it's sort of just to noddle on politely is sort of sometimes insufferable. It's, it's kind of painful <laughs> just sort of keep yeah. it down inside. <laughs> For the true geeks, we have to learn to do that sometimes. Yeah, I know it's, a real tragedy. But for the true geeks, it's really amazing because 
my Beatles are not your Beatles are not Allison's Beatles and we can discuss endlessly about the differences between you know my George and your George which given the fact that we have access to the same material even though it's best are so different and it's so interesting how we can put so much of ourselves onto this band and you know interpret the songs through that lens you said something in the book that i love that said tell me you're paul mccartney and i will tell you who you are <laughs> that's one of my favorite things that i've heard read ever because it's so true and now i'm thinking about everybody i know and how they react to paul and i'm totally doing that and it's weird that people don't argue about the other three the way they argue about paul if you're in the mood to just start an argument, Paul is the beetle you bring up. And it's really wild that people have such wildly conflicting feelings about Paul. And he's just got this absolutely unique in human history combination of extremely pronounced traits. You know, seeing him just a few weeks ago, I saw him on stage in Austin at Austin City Limits. And, you know, it was a very hot day. It was Texas. It was sweltering. It was humidity. People had been standing and in many cases waiting for their spot for this Paul McCartney performance for hours. And Paul came out and the heat just did not affect him. He just could not wait to get out there. He could not wait to play as long as possible, cramming in as many songs as he did. He hates to leave the stage. It's inspiring, but it's also it's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, it is. I wonder, yeah. I wonder if that's why, because, I mean, if you look at John versus Paul, John wore his life on his sleeve in such a, a more open way than Paul did. But there's maybe it was Paul's willingness to cover things up that make him such a, a polarizing figure in a way that maybe John isn't. I'm not sure. It's funny. It's kind of poignant that for John and George especially, that they spent their early 70s thinking like, oh boy, now I can make all the records I want to because Paul isn't butting in and Paul isn't giving ideas and Paul isn't you know, saying like, okay, let's get to the studio on time. And that for both of them, it was really surprising that it was just a lot harder to make records without someone like Paul just nagging you to get to the studio and making sure you finished your songs and you know, giving you ideas about how it could be done differently. All the things that drove them crazy about Paul, it was just a lot harder making music without that. Well, as you said, every John kind of needs a Paul. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think Absolutely. one of the things about Paul that one of his more charming or one of his more blessed traits is the fact that he could kind of fly under the radar. You know, Paul gets away with a lot of a lot of stuff because for a lot of the population, he's the cute one. He's the whimsical one. Uh, you know, he's the one who writes the granny music, as John would say. And it's like, no, if you dive deeper, you see that Paul is like behind the, the switchboard a lot and controlling a lot of stuff. And even when the Beatles didn't realize it themselves. And that he was someone who always had a new idea and, and the energy to follow through with it, which is something that it's still kind of astounding, like how much energy he has for entertaining, for making records, for finishing songs. Egypt Station, which I love, it's a great record. It was a number one record that drives to keep proving himself, which he just does not need to do. It's not like he needs you know, new songs for people to show up at his tour. It's more the opposite. People show up at the tour they want to hear yesterday. People aren't necessarily showing up singing, oh, I really hope he does. I want to saw you. Like, you know, like, um, <laughs> okay, yeah, I but, am, but like, that's just me. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. I'm glad you are. I'm glad you are. But he still does that Kanye Rihanna song. He still does that live. He's so proud of it. He loves telling the story of how he wrote it. And it's funny because when he does that song, you think, you know, 
I don't know if Kanye's still doing the song. I don't know if Rihanna's still doing the song live. But for Paul, it was such a point of pride that he is not banished to the old people table. He wants to be very much part of the pop moment. And that's been a constant through his entire life. I think John unfairly gets a lot of credit for being the avant-garde Beatle, but Paul was so ahead of that. Paul was doing that in his attic apartment at the Asher's house, you know, before John even met Yoko, he was getting into the avant-garde sounds. And he's always been kind of like on that wavelength, of course, with like later with McCartney too, it's prime Paul and his avant-garde. That's another way that Paul sort of gets unfairly passed over. I almost think that for Paul, everything is avant-garde. Like the 20s are experimental to him. So he did Kisses on the Bottom and classical music is experimental for him. So he did a, you know, a couple of oratorios and a ballet. Like he just, he sees everything in this open way that nothing is off limits and nothing is too new or too old or too anything for him that curiosity that he has that rubs off on the others and that they all part of like listening to their records is listening to all the different types of curiosity that they brought to it and just how eager they were to impress each other you know they really loved to show off for each other and that was such a motivation to make music you know like of course they had a competitive thing you know Paul wanted to top John and John wanted to top Paul and George wanted to top both of them and Ringo I guess was curious about what was for lunch but they (laughs) both like, but they all love to make music together apart because they just, they love to impress each other. There's uh, one thing you talk about in the uh, book, which is the the song and the video, more poignantly, for So Bad, <laughs> which, you know, the video is so bad, for so bad. Uh, but you have this great <laughs> line, Rob, that... <laughs> quote, it makes me trust Paul less and respect myself less, which I love that. I wrote that down because that's kind of how I have felt and how I know certain other people in my life have felt when they finally come to Paul, because at least for me, I grew up hearing like, oh, if you love Paul, you're just like a boy crazy, like teenage girl, because he's the cute one and, and all that. And I grew up as a John girl. And this is another thing that you write about, which is that Johns can't be friends and Pauls can't be friends, which is, it, <laughs> I have a lot of baggage surrounding that. And I'll tell you why, because I grew up, I had this best, best friend, pretty much my first Beatles friend. And she was a John girl. And I grew up as a John girl. Love John. Well, John was my, my guy my whole life. And then I met her and she convinced me because I love Fleming Pie so much that and Run Double Run and all those like, and I loved Off the Ground. I still love Off the Ground, but because I love those albums so much that no, your favorite Beatles, not John, it's Paul because she wanted John all to herself. So I have this like crazy existential crisis where I still don't know who my favorite Beatle is. It's crazy. So when she finally convinced me that no, your favorite's Paul, I sort of felt bad about myself <laughs> because I was like, no, wow. but I'm not, I'm not Paul. I'm, I'm, I'm John. John, Paul is just so like, he's just so superficial. Like I can't be, I'm deep. I'm deep. Look at me. <laughs> I, I'm in therapy. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's probably like a familiar pattern that you go in and you grow up being told, you know, like, oh, John was the tough one and Paul was the cute one. And it, the longer you live with the music over the years, it's like actually John loved to be cute like, and Paul loved to be tough. They each had such complex personalities and they really brought different things out of each other's personalities. But I grew up being a teenager in the 80s, which was a very anti-Paul time, in part because of songs like So Bad, which was a song that I loved. But, you know, it was a song that he clearly, like, just got to a point where he was like, yeah, I'm not going to work any harder on that song. And for me, it was a constant torment, but I was always 
Paul is the one for me. I loved them all, but it was a very contrarian and isolated stance in the 80s, but I just thought Paul is the one for me. A song like For No One, which is a song that really just nobody else at all could have written. Martha, my dear, another another example, like just songs with these emotional extremes that only Paul could visit. I think the deeper you get into it, you start kind of having those crises of consciousness that, you know, I have been a Paul person all my life. Do I have this John in me? Do I have the Paul in me? And you kind of see <laughs> see them for more more than they are the deeper you go, which is probably why 50 years is not even close to enough for most of us. I want to talk about two songs that you hit on, and I, I need you to explain yourself, Rob. Uh, uh, first right. of all, it's got my mind set on you. Tell me why words cannot describe its wretchedness. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, if you were a Beatles fan in 1987 and it was like, whoa, okay, the good news is George has a new album out. The bad news is the hit song is I Got My Mind Set On You, which sounds like absolutely rock bottom, terrible parody of the worst of big money 80s pop the lack of melody and the blaringness and the repetition of it. It's a song that I just have never been able to warm to at all. Tragically. <laughs> I was at the peak of my George fandom when that song came out and that song was absolute torment for me. The animatronic taxidermy in the video didn't really do it for you. I thought George, if this is your video, you could stand up. You don't have to sit in an armchair <laughs> by the fire. Literally sit in an armchair by the fire during this video. And then there's this break where it pulls back and his body double gets up to do a funky dance. And it's like, do they really think that they're fooling us that George is doing this funky dance? So is it better or worse than the video for So Bad, which is the bottom of the bottom? Well, I have to say the video for So Bad, it's a emotional experience for me because Paul is turning on the charm in that video and it works on me. I'm not made of wood. <laughs> the, the, the charm that he turns on in that video, it absolutely works on me. And it, it, it horrifies me that he's trying to manipulate me in a way that, that's kind of offensive to me. And yet the fact that it's effective yeah, is it's part works. of what makes it a... <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. If I were able to resist Paul's charm in that video, I would not have such an emotional response to it. But he's got Linda in the video and Ringo in the video. And that's cool. They're, they're a long time part of Paul's story. And then he puts this side man on there and puts him in a Beatles suit just so he can have four people to, you know, to reenact the Beatle poses. And that seems just so disrespectful to the Beatles and so disrespectful to me. And it hurts my feelings. And yet it really works, you know, when he turns on the charm, when he looks at the camera to sing that song, which is such an incredibly beautiful song that is completely forgotten and completely written out of Paul history, like so many of, of the hits he scored along the way. It's funny that for me, so much of what I, I love most about Paul and, and what I agonize over about Paul, all there in that one song. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. Well, speaking of Paul and a lot of agony, you really hate my love. And that's okay, because a lot of us do. I wrote down this incredible phrase that you use, which is suck Sunday, and I'm totally going to steal that. Because um, <laughs> I think that's totally, I mean, that's definitely me whenever Paul plays it live in concert. I'm sort of like, oh, God, again. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Paul? It's funny because Paul was so great at writing that kind of song. I saw Hard Day's Night a few weeks ago. I hosted a screening in Austin. And the part that always takes my breath away in that movie, apart from other parts that are really funny and really exciting and really inspiring, but to me, like the part that's so moving is when they're singing And I Love Her. Mm. And it's the one song where nobody's being funny. 
everybody's got a totally straight face and they totally mean it. It's kind of beautiful. And the way Paul sings that song, and it always reminds me of Linda. And it's funny that when he sings that song and when he filmed that scene in that movie, you know, he was still a few years away from meeting Linda. You know, he didn't know that, you know, that the love he's singing about in that song, that he's going to find it in this person, but he knows that she's coming. And he sings about it in ways that seem so sort of emotionally extravagant from, you know, a 22-year-old pop star when he says, you know, like, I know this love of mine will never die. And it's like, well, that's, that seems like a tough promise to live up to. And that Paul McCartney was the one 60s pop star of his generation who actually meant those words when he sang them. And that, you know, when he met Linda, those words came true and that he was able to sort of live out the promises in that song in ways that nobody watching that movie in 1964 would have had any way of guessing how much Paul was going to live it out. I think that's one of the lovely things about Paul. Maybe that's why I can't get enough of Paul is that he did do that and he did give up the, the glam rock lifestyle that he probably could have had and all the women he could have had. He wanted that life with Linda and he chose it and he went full speed ahead. Unbelievable. Yeah. And when, when people talk about Paul as an emotional lightweight and I'm like, absolutely no. Like he, he met Linda and he said, yep, this is, this is the one for me. And and then it was all done for him after, you know, after a, a, a fairly active career, at, like philandering, he was completely done. And he just decided, this is what I want. And he didn't even worry about it. And they never spent a night apart until he went to jail. And there, there's just absolutely no story like that comparable in his generation. Uh, not in the other Beatles, you know, compared to like any of the Stones or, or the who you can't even compare it to other rock stars. There's just no other stories like that from that generation. And that. Paul is someone who just, he, he was wired differently from other people and was capable of making an emotional commitment like that with the emotional follow through for it. You said something in the book that really resonated with me. You said all four Beatles were surrogate dads to 70s kids, which partly why we fantasized about them so much. Being a, an early 90s kid, I felt the same way about them too. And you said something else that was related was that I will never be older than the Beatles were at certain times in their lives. Oh like, yeah, you can, same. There's something about their agelessness that even now, like I, I don't see them in A Hard Day's Night as 22 years old. It's timeless and they'll always have that, that I think surrogate dad quality, no matter how old we get and how old they get. Yeah, it's funny. I actually had a thought yesterday as I was leaping through your book again, um, there's a photo of George in it. And for the first time, I think, maybe not in my life, but recently I looked at him and I said, God, he looks so young there. Because usually I look at the Beatles as 22-year-olds and I'm like, oh, they're older than me. And I'm in my 30s, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I listened to a song like Ticket to Ride or Long, Long, Long is another good example. Like to me, the boys in that song, they are older than I am. That's one where I'm a kid and they're the grown-ups. Ticket to Ride is a song where they sound... They're also audible and Ticket to Ride. It's a song where you can pick out what each Beatle is doing. And each one is really like really stepping out, but they're all making sure and like not to interfere with the story that John's telling. And, you know, you listen to Paul's harmony vocals, you listen to Ringo's drumming, listen to George's guitar, and they're all adding something. But you can also tell that they're just listening to John tell this story. And to me, I listen to Ticket to Ride. And not once do I ever hear that song and think, you know, these guys are just 24. <laughs> right? The guy singing this song is a kid, basically. He has his whole life ahead of him. It never sounds that way to me. 
No, if you think yeah. about how old Paul was when he wrote Eleanor Rigby or some of these really deep introspective songs, I try to think about me when I was 24. No way. Not even yeah. close. Yeah. I kind of wonder always, like, where did that come from with them? I imagine with John and Paul, of course, it comes from this shared history of these really tragic things that happened, you know, a lot of abandonment, a lot of death, a lot of heartache. And it's like, man, at like 21, these kids had seen more than people in their like 40s and 50s have seen, you know, it's, yeah, I always think of them as kind of like mentoring me, you know, even though they're, they're 20. Even at a really young age, they were looking for different ways to be adults than the models that they had and that they were looking for, for, especially for different ways to be male adults, not repeating patterns of the past. I do talk a lot of the book about rubber soul. I really have a intense fixation on rubber soul, but just, you know, the way that that album begins with, you know, John and Paul singing together, I asked a girl what, what she wanted to be. That's still such a shocking opening line to an album. The Rolling Stones certainly never began an album or a song that way. They certainly never asked any girl what she wanted to be. It was something that the Beatles were very early on for whatever reason, they were really emotionally invested in looking for new ways to be adults and just not repeat the patterns of the past that they inherited. Right. And speaking of the subject matter in those songs like that with, you know, the girls and, and that you brought up something when you're talking about the Martha, my dear, and Julia sort of dichotomy, which is, um, I believe it's in Martha, my dear, you see yourself as the girl or Martha. And then Julia, you see yourself as John. And that made me think, like, what do I see myself as in Beatles songs? I never really thought about it. And that's a super interesting concept. It's funny for me to, you know, to listen to Martha, my dear, and to go back and forth between Martha, my dear. It's not like Julia. In Julia, John is like, I have something really, really heavy to tell you. And he just, he opens his soul. And with Paul, you know, someone is having a, a rough day, is in a melancholy state of mind, and just trying to cheer them up and just trying to brighten the moment for them. I can go back and forth between Paul and Martha, but going back and forth between John and Julia is very intense. That's a very, very like intense emotional difference between those two songs, and yet it really sums up the whole people dynamic in two songs. I guess I just never thought about like myself within that context, you know, sort of like, am I the one that they're singing to, or am I the one singing the song? You know, which is something that now I'm going to have to just go back and listen to the whole Beatles catalog and try to decide again. So <laughs> there goes my next, like, month and a half. I've always loved Martha, my dear, but you gave me a new appreciation for it. Now I'm kind of seeing it as this, like, singing in the rain grand musical moment. I love it. Even though it's about a dog. I love that song. You know, Martha was a very beautiful part of Paul and Linda's life. And it's funny, I, I'm kind of obsessed with Martha. She's definitely my favorite rock and roll dog. That, you know, that she was such a, an unusual type of dog for a rock star to get. And that Paul being, you know, the one Beatle who was still living in London, you know, that he would walk around just taking Martha for a walk. And he would know that people would just think he was just another guy taking a dog out for a walk. And the connection between Paul and Martha, in the rare occasions when Paul talks about Martha, he implies that John was a little jealous of Martha, that Paul gave such unconditional love to this big, shaggy, demanding animal. John always said he was really surprised that Paul had such an intense bond with Martha. One thing I wanted to bring up is throughout the book, Ringo sort of pops up here and there, as he does. You know, uh, I think in as general, that's a, that's a fair statement. Here we go. Um, okay, Erica. Well, Erica knows where I'm getting yeah. at this. So, uh, Rob, I know we're new friends, but there's something you should probably know about me, which is that I don't really like Ringo a lot. So, uh, in fact, I... Hey, I didn't hear that. I, I think there was a buzz on the line. <laughs> there was a, there was a buzz. Okay, good, good. Let's just pretend this phase of the conversation never happened. 
<laughs> okay, well, but now I'm going to say something nice because by the end of the book, I or I was reading the part where, uh, you know, to dissolve the Beatles or whatever, they send Ringo to Paul's house with the envelope and Paul goes apeshit on Ringo and starts, you know, wagging his finger in his face and, and saying mean things. And I found myself saying, wow, Paul, don't do that to Ringo. So you sort of made me defend Ringo a little bit in my own mind, uh, which is Aww. amazing. Yeah, and also you brought up the Pizza Hut commercial, so thanks, because that is yep. one of Ringo's finest Ringo's moments. Pizza Hut commercial, yes. Ringo's <laughs> Pizza Hut commercial is it's, it's a major artistic statement. It's unbelievably badass. I just love Ringo's Pizza Hut commercial. And we're going to have to share that on our socials just so everybody who hasn't seen it in a while can relive the glory. It's so good. Growing up as a Monkees fan, it was like, that was kind of my first introduction to Ringo. I didn't know who he was when I saw that um, Pizza Hut commercial wow. on TV and aired. For real, because I became a Monkees fan like three years before I became a Beatles fan. And in my mind, I couldn't love them both. So I decided that I would love the Monkees and absolutely hate the Beatles. So I spent like two years trash talking the Beatles. I didn't even know them. So I was like, who the fuck is this? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's where it comes from. My deep seated wow. uh, thing for Ringo. God, I love the monkeys. Love the monkeys. Still love the Hell monkeys. Hell yeah. Why don't you love why don't you love Ringo? I okay, so I've thought a lot about this, especially since we started this podcast back in the summer. It's not Ringo the Beatle. I, I like Ringo the Beatle and I get his place in it. And it's not like, I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, he's a shitty drummer because I think he was the perfect drummer for the Beatles. I don't like Ringo because I think modern Ringo is kind of a jerk. Like, I think he had a lot of balls to say, don't send me any more fan mail. And, you know, I'm too busy. And I'm saying I'm warning you with peace and love. Like, that was the moment where I flipped my Ringo switch. And then I saw him this past couple months at the Greek theater here in LA and I don't know it was it, it was fine like it, I enjoyed the show it was okay but I just could not get past the whole thing of like he should be more and he doesn't have to like love the fans or do meet and greets or that kind of thing but at least don't make a video saying I'm too busy for you the people who have supported me my whole career you know yeah uh, maybe someday that can seem to you like just he had a bad day which is how it's <laughs> Um, well, I, you know, I have lots of bad days. I don't film them, put them on YouTube and alienate like large <laughs> portions of the population. Yes. <laughs> is all I'm yeah. saying. <laughs> maybe, maybe your opinion on Ringo is kind of slowly changing, which is one of my goals by doing this podcast that I hope in the next year mm-hmm. you will like Ringo. So. <laughs> We're getting there. Mm. We're getting there. Mm. Good luck. I mean, I, I did listen to, I went on a hike the other day and I listened to the whole of Ringo Rama. So I feel like that's my first act of charity this holiday season. You're getting there. Mm. To me, the Beatles, they really open their souls when, when Ringo is drumming in a way that they just, you know, the brotherly warmth that he brought to each of the other three Beatles. And, and that even after the Beatles broke up, they still wanted Ringo drumming just because they felt emotionally they were in good hands. To me, it says a lot about Ringo that they were able to do their most honest singing when Ringo was backing them up. I always loved that line from John when they were recording Don't Let Me Down. And he was talking to Ringo about the drum intro and he said, Give me a big on the on the cymbal mm-hmm. when I can give me the courage to come screaming in. And to me that's such a beautiful statement of what Ringo means to all of us. You know, what he meant to the other Beatles certainly is he gave him the courage to come screaming in. Yeah, and I can totally appreciate that. Like I said, like my beef is not with Beetle Ringo. Like you know, I just—it's more of a modern development. But I, 
wholly appreciate and recognize his his role within the band and and there was nobody else like it was always Ringo yeah well it seems like nowadays there's no way to separate the music from the people we just can't anymore it's been so long and we're so deep into it I mean I feel I don't know if I've ever even said this in the podcast but I have a similar feeling about George I think that when I first got into the Beatles I just didn't gel with his personality I didn't understand it and his songs were more on the you know, curmudgeon side, and I just didn't get it. And I feel like the more I talk about George, the more I come around to him, but it's taken a long time to get to know his music because I felt like I didn't get the guy. Well, he's very emotionally demanding, isn't he? He's he is. Very, he uh, really is. Curmudgeonly and withholding in ways that are sometimes really frustrating. Even when they're understandable, that doesn't make them any less frustrating. But to me, there's a George Solo record I was listening to this morning, his self-titled record from 1979, mm-hmm. which has a great, beautiful song on it called Here Comes the Moon. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because it's easy to just see the title and say, ha ha, George was a little short of ideas for this record. And he thought he'd do a little joke about, about his most famous Beatles song. And yet Here Comes the Moon is such a beautiful song. And he's singing about how he really does feel for the moon and he and, and he sings the line the moon is like a little brother to the sun and i was like wow i guess george sees himself as the moon in this song and that you know he's he's overshadowed by by the sun and the stars certainly by 79 paul had had left the others in the dust in terms of of just his creative output but you know for george to identify with the moon in, in this really sweet way and this really underrated easily overlooked song that to me is a very beautiful and typical george moment yeah, I love that. I love that album and I love that song. I it's been a while since I've listened to it, but I remember um, first hearing it when it came out on the big George box set. I think in probably ten, fifteen years ago. But I really like about George that, especially as I get older, um, you know, I'm pretty dry and sarcastic in my sense of humor, and I just love his like uh-huh. saltiness. Like it just makes me love him more that he was just so freaking salty. You could bring the bitchy attitude like none of the others. It was funny that they were all they were all afraid of that, and that it just it did not stop. I um, was talking a couple of weeks ago on the podcast about the uh, the Ringo TV special, the Ognorats thing, where George is sort of the narrator. And it's just, I think it's one of his finest moments. He's just hilarious. He steals the show. Nice perm, too. His perm, he could he could out-perm the others, definitely. Out-perm <laughs> Best perm, <others>. George. <laughs> um, in the, uh, the John and Yoko Imagine movie, which I never saw mm-hmm. until, uh, until a few months ago, and, and I saw it on the screen. See, we all have our things. First time. It's so awesome. Oh, I can't yeah. believe I beat you both yeah. on that one. That's amazing. I'm, I feel good about myself right now. Oh, my God. I loved it. And I, I came into it thinking that it was just going to be, you know, some stoned home movies. So I was really surprised how emotional it was, how funny it was, how compelling it was. But there's this part where there's a surprise George cameo. It's, it's where mm-hmm. you know, we're in a hotel room and suddenly George and Yoko walk through the door and she's on his arm and he's got his long beard. And we don't know that George is coming up to that point. And it was really funny. And that moment just totally took my breath away. And I was like, yep, George, he knows how to make an entrance. <laughs> Some slight trolling there, but yeah, that that's always a lovely moment in that sort of sequence of the parade of people. Yeah, I was like, we just saw Fred Astaire. It takes a lot to impress us at this point. <laughs> and hanging out, they were hanging out with Miles Davis earlier in the movie, but the way George comes in and seeing Yoko on George's arm, really sweet, but also super impressive. Do you think at that moment that George was still secretly fuming that Yoko ate his biscuits? I think he was. I think yeah. he was always fuming about he held that. On to that. I think I think George maybe even not so secretly fuming. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if he brought it up that day. George did a lot of fuming. 
but it was funny to see him and Yoko and the footage where he and John are recording How Do You Sleep and, and George is playing the guitar solo, that they're just enjoying the mischief of it so much. And you think, wow, George was able to take his fuming in some creative directions. The older I get, the more I appreciate it, for sure. Absolutely. Well, and he was funnier at fuming than most of us. Something I was watching last night with my mom. Um, my mom was watching PBS, and there was this thing about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and there was a clip of people's induction speeches, a clip of uh, George's acceptance speech when the Beatles were inducted into the Hall of Fame in 88, which Paul didn't show up for. And George is so funny and so salty in that clip, and he's just like, well, you know, Nobody expects a speech from me because I'm the quiet beetle. And you know, <laughs> the one the one who would have made a big long speech is, is the one who didn't show up here tonight. It's a shame Paul isn't here. He had the speech in his pocket. Um, <laughs> but I was like, wow, like George's salt, just never ending reserve. <laughs> I love it so much. Even even accepting this big like career honor, like it was just an excuse to turn on the George. So good. See, I'm going to love George and you're going to love Ringo by the end of this because we're just seeing so many new angles. A really underrated aspect of, of George, I, I guess everybody thinks that George was the one who discovered the Maharishi and got the others into the Maharishi. It's a really strangely undertold part of the story that it was Patty who got George into the Maharishi and that right. he was into that stuff before he was and that, you know, Patty was the one who said, yes, let's let's check out this guy, the Maharishi. To me, there's a real like element of George there that he was just that curious enough to share that with Patty and, and, and his willingness to learn from Patty and to be very overt about that. Something that really sets the Beatles apart from other musicians, the way Paul was always eager to say that, you know, Jane Asher was the one who was playing him classical music and getting him into avant-garde art and that John was the one who was, you know, always giving Yoko so much credit for her artistic influence on him. It, it's something that really sets the Beatles apart is that that element of creative partnership that they had with the women in their lives. Yeah, and I've got to say that I really liked how you discussed the women of the Beatles in your book as well. Like, I love the comparison you made between Linda and Yoko as these strong, you know, New York mothers that John and Paul ultimately chose. I thought that was really poignant. So crazy how much they have in common. They both went to Sarah Lawrence. I know. I always forget that. That's crazy. so crazy. They were both older. They both had one kid. They were both divorced. Like, it's kind of amazing how, you know, like, they had a lot of similarities. And I mean, if you really want to get into it, a lot of people blame Yoko for the breakup, but you could also blame Linda. You could throw her into the mix as well. And people complained about them for so many years after the Beatles. It's really strange how much hostility that was focused on both of them. And, and wow, they just did not care. Yeah, they, they literally could not care less, which is the beauty of both of them. I think they're both kind of two of my heroes. Absolutely. Well, we did get a couple of questions on social media uh, from readers of your book and fans of your writing, Rob. So Kelly Hominick, I hope I pronounced your last name right, uh, Kelly, on Twitter asks, Rob, you've written a top five Beatles book, in my opinion, mine too. I'm wondering, which, what's your favorite Beatles book? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, thank you very much. I have to say, Mark Lewison's Tune In is just very hard to beat. And it's yeah. only, you know, the first few years of, of the band's existence. But, you know, it's so much of, you know, where the emotional bond between them came from, which, you know, is, is something that I'm so fascinated with. And it's just got so much about, you know, the relationships between the Beatles, really just the foundation for where all their music came from and, and where their whole lives came from. That one's at the top for me. 
one I love that I'm always, always kind of fascinated with is Nicholas Schaffner's The Beatles Forever, which came out in 77. It's definitely the best book about the Beatles. It was written, you know, while all four of them were still alive. And that's the one that I learned the whole story from when I was a kid. That was my favorite book when I was a kid. Yes, me too. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. And it's weirdly underrated and under underpraised now and just underknown. So I'm always talking about Nicholas Schaffner's The Beatles Forever because that's every time I go back to it, I'm always amazed how brilliant it is, how funny it is, and how lucky I was to learn the story from him at, at a young age. I basically learned everything from that book as a kid about the Beatles. Like I would go to the library, I would take it out over and over and over again. It was it was the yes. book. Like between that and the complete Beatles, like, okay, so I got to bring this one up. You brought up that girl in the Beatles Forever who that Brooklyn girl who starts talking about sprout of a new generation yes. that girl and she it, what it is it's a painting and it's a painting of Paul's head growing out of like a, a plant or a cabbage or something and she says I, I, I had not heard this for years and it just brought me back it shows Paul McCartney coming up from the earth like sprouting a sprout a sprout a start a new dawn oh my god like brought me back so good I can't even unbelievable yes She's like, I call this the sprout of a new generation. The Beatles, they began everything with the music and the haircuts and everything. And this is Paul growing out of the landscape because he's sprout of a new generation. I just, I love that. I love that girl so much. Me too. She was like, I wanted to be that girl when I was a kid. So thank you for that. I love the complete Beatles. It's that, That's weirdly like underrated now. I mean, compared to anthology, I guess it, it was kind of superseded, but I, I love the complete Beatles. God, me too. It's so funny. We were talking before we start recording, Erica and I, um, about the complete Beatles. And I don't want to admit this. I've never seen it because I sort of came along after. Uh, so I had the anthology. So I guess that sort of yep. complete Beatles got buried for me. But now I'm going to go watch it. Yeah, I'm I jealous of you <laughs> that you haven't seen it and you're going to see it. Yeah, yeah you have so much to look forward to. You have so much to look forward to. I'm curious what you think. I love it. And it's funny going back to it after anthology, a lot of the good stuff in it is told in anthology, but there's still lots of footage in it that's not an anthology and that just isn't anywhere. The Sprout of a New Generation girl, she's not on YouTube or anything. Like that that clip is only in, in the Complete Beatles as far as I can tell. Well, I am excited to uh, experience it the first time. Also, it will make you love Ringo because there's this part, this early interview from 64 where they're asking them all like what they're going to do after the Beatles and Ringo's like, well, I'm, I'm going to be a hairdresser and have a string of hair salons. It, he says, I'd be really good at it, you know. Here, w- would you like another cup of tea, madam? Like, <laughs> Ringo, Ringo goes deep into his hairdressing-like plan. He's, he's got this mapped out. It's kind of astonishing. I'm, I know. I'm super excited. Um, it's funny. I was just told about, and this is going to definitely show my naivete, you talk about in the book, and the name is escaping me, of like the very first biopic. Help me, guys. Um, oh, Birth of the Beatles. Birth of the Beatles, yeah. And I was just told about that when I was at South by Southwest this past year. And I was Birth like, I've never Beatles. seen that. It was on uh, TV in 1979. Mind-blowing for me. It was where I found out that Brian Epstein was gay, among many other things about the Beatles story. For me, it's like I remember watching like two of us on VH1. That's kind of like my sort of uh, plasticine uh, upbringing of Beatles biopics. Well, that's a classic. I love two of us. I've I love seen it. that 20 times. <laughs> Dude, I, so I after this symposium, <laughs> yeah, after the symposium, I went to um, Strawberry Field like a couple days later or something. Uh... And I was, 
I was going live. I was going live on Instagram and I started talking about the two of us scene where John and Paul are really stoned and they're in Central Park and they start singing Shaboom by the chords. And yes. uh, or they start asking a band to play it. And the band's like, we don't know, Shaboom. And then I think it's John who's like, the chords, the chords. And I say that every time I listen to that song. <laughs> it's like always in my mind. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I love two of us. Jared Harris is my favorite movie Lennon of all time. Aiden Quinn might be the only movie McCartney I've ever seen. And because he's already Aiden Quinn so famous, it's it's kind of astonishing for me. I love that movie. Um, yeah. I, I still have that on VHS. It's actually an advanced VHS cassette because I was sent a review copy by VH1 when it came out because I was writing about it in Rolling Stone. And so I still have this cherished, battered, you know, 20-year-old VHS advanced review copy of, of Two of Us. And I watch it at least once a year. Oh, that's amazing. I think I, now that you say that, I think I have it on DVD, so I need to go dig it out. But yeah, Aiden Quinn is like, for me, the most random McCartney, but I, I don't hate it. I'm not mad at it. It's just pretty, it's like super random. I remember hearing an interview with Paul on the radio on Q104. He was talking to Scott Meany soon after that movie came out. And he was saying that Aiden Quinn, he's like, I call him stalker because he knows everything about me. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like he knows. He said Aiden Quinn like was red hot to play Paul McCartney, and but it, it's funny because he talked about the scene that you mentioned, you know, where he said, you know, well when they had us going out to Central Park in the middle of the day, are you mad, son? You know, it's like <laughs> absolutely no possible way we could have gotten away with that. Really? Because I thought this was like a totally like factual portrayal of what happened. I'm shocked. <laughs> uh, well. But, you know, factually, it's it's really like it's on point, like in terms of anachronisms and the timeline and everything like like it's kind of the opposite of Bohemian Rhapsody that way. Yes, I ruined it for all the friends I saw it with. <laughs> I, I kept saying, but that song came out three years earlier. Like, you know, how, how are you writing? We will rock you in 1980. <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, they mess with some Beatle pretty crazy fans, stuff. And because Beatle fans, because let's face it, we are the absolute worst when it comes to stuff like that. And yeah. you know, we will notice stuff like that and point it out. So I love that two of us was able to to get the details where everything, you know, everything that happened could have happened. I respected their attention to the to the timeline. If nothing else, they got the look sort of down. There's nothing I hate worse than a Beatle biopic where they have like Ringo in like a 1965 haircut in like 1963. It just, oh, I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. Did you ever see a movie called I Want to Hold Your Hand? Hell yeah. yeah. That's like one of my favorite okay. movies. Okay. Weirdly like under, under known and unsung movie. I completely love that. And just the idea of like when it came out, it was such a novel idea. Like, Oh, here's a movie about a bunch of Beatles fans. And we're just the band. We're only going to hear their voices, you know, while she's hiding under the bed in their hotel room. And that's a perfect example of what I was just talking about. Because at the end, when they get in the limo, they all obviously have like 65 haircuts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Beatles so fans are tough in that department. I know. Come on, Robert Semenkis. You could do better. <laughs> just saying. Also, one of them has an American accent. <laughs> oh, God. Can't it was even. the American Beatle. Yeah. Larry. Larry. Absolutely. Jesus. Yes. Oh, my God. I love that movie. So we've got a couple other questions here, although we could talk about two of us and biopics all day long. Um, maybe we'll be back when we do a biopics episode because we have to do that. Yes. Um, immediately. Uh, yes. Following. <laughs> I want to talk to you when you do a complete Beatles episode. Oh, well, oh, that's yeah, so now happening. we have to because it'll be like a My Yellow Submarine. 
Uh, let's see here. So we got a question from Jeremy on Instagram. So he asks, what's the significance of turn me on dead man? And I'm assuming he's talking about uh, in the context of Paul is dead, which we did an episode on that, what, two episodes ago, Erica? Yeah, we did. Yeah. And you did a fabulous chapter all about the Paul is dead. Fun times. Yep. Um, it's there if you spin it backwards. But as John said, I don't know what Beatle records sound like when they play backwards. I never play them backwards. <laughs> so growing up in the time of, of the vinyl white album, I did I did spin that backwards a time or two. It was a little creepy. Also, like all the clues and the idea that they were just there. And, and it's like something I loved about Nicholas Schaffner's The Beatles Forever was he just had a little rundown of the whole story and all the clues and and how, you know, yes, indeed, they were all random and none of them meant anything. I love it how you called it something like the first collective Beatles fanfic. It really is, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. a way we were, that the fans of the time were able to express their creativity in a way that we don't give a second thought about now because we can share with all of these online communities and put out whatever creative Beatles-related output we want in seconds. Any pop star shipping you want to do, you can <laughs> you know, instantly find all sorts of random artifacts all over the place that prove that, you know, that, that this happened, because come on, how could it be a coincidence? But back then it was so, you know, people were so starved for that, that they were like, you know, I think actually the most famous rock star in the world died three years ago. And the Beatles are just announcing it because if you hold up Abbey Road and you hold up a butter knife to the back cover, you can see a skull. (laughs) (laughs) That's how we'll announce like the death of of the most photographed and, and filmed person in Great Britain. I love it, too, that the reason was because they one of the theories was that they thought it might be funny to hide that he died. (laughs) Like they're that nasty. They think it's a laugh. I don't see them thinking it's that funny, but it's part of the fandom. And, and, you know, like you said, it's sort of a beginning of, you know, now that kind of creative energy is all over fandom. It's funny because Erica and I discovered, uh, I think the first night of the symposium, I turned her on to something that I stumbled upon on Instagram, which is uh, people who ship Brian Epstein and George Martin. And they call it Martstein. So, I mean, that's kind of where we're at. We've come from Paul is dead to Martstein. Oh, my gosh. I love that. Nope. I have no <laughs> idea. I've never, I've never experienced Martstein before. But oh, now, I'll send I, you some, I, like, fan art. Oh, I <laughs> oh totally ship it now. Oh, my gosh. That ship sails totally itself. It. When you think oh of George God. Martin, think about his White Album recording pictures, because that's got to be the period. <laughs> like, oh, just God. not that that's, that's historically accurate, but it, just the way he looks. you got to think about it. Yeah, he was pretty hot then. Yeah, oh, those holy. pictures at the listening party, that like all throughout the symposium, I just couldn't deal with it. <laughs> just saying. George, George Martin, George Martin was kind of yeah, he was disturbingly fine in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm, I'm I'm totally down with the Mart Stein shipping. Great, great. So we'll yeah, we'll have a Mart Stein episode. Bring it back. <laughs> 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 we'll look for all the Mart Stein clues hidden in uh, in Beatle records. <laughs> Oh my gosh, they got to be everywhere. The right? ballad of John and Yoko is secretly about Mart Stein. I mean, you've got to hide your love away. We've never had a you know a recipient oh. for that. Oh, just saying. All right, all right, you're going to be oh, on our Mart man. Stein episode too. It's coming soon. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes, absolutely. Oh, I'm crying. So good. Okay, the night before is a total Mart Stein song. Ooh. And now I'm going to write a whole fanfic about it. Hidden in the guise of a Paul song. 
to throw them off the trail. Absolutely. You know, I think maybe the whole Help album is just one Mark Stein secret clue after another. It's the Beatles saying, help, there's this relationship and we cannot, we don't know what to do about it. Help well, us. We can't, <laughs> we can't just stop at the Beatles catalog, though. We've got to go to the Scylla catalog. So the Black songs, I'm sure, are full of Mark Stein. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> love of the love. Absolutely. Totally. totally backwards. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, shit. Now we got to play all the songs backwards. It's going to say, you know, George loves Brian and vice versa in those terms. Exactly. Yeah, you know, in boys, it's it's actually Brian who says, all right, George. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then um, I'm sure like, you know, there's hidden gems in like the circle. God, there's so many. This is such an unexplored yep. theory. Mm. Oh, the I'm circle. What kid. kind of circle is that? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> into this ship <laughs> oh, I'm so dying right now I'm literally like I'm so down with this <laughs> okay moving on to another question we got <laughs> Philip Matthews on Twitter asks can Obla de Obla da ever be justified yep it can if you're in the mood for it and if you're not it can't be that's a that's a real love it or hate it song and it varies <laughs> moment to moment I've been loving it a lot like in the past few months since the new White album like uh, so I've been loving it in the context of the album but that's when you're either in the mood to hear it or you're not. I did love your story about it in the book, though, which yeah, somehow that too. always, I never heard that before, that really the way the song came about was because Paul did the thing that John suggested, even though John hated that song with the White Hot Passion. Well, and, and a beautiful moment of them putting their personal stuff aside because they realize it's how the song should go. So Paul is really upset that, you know, that John is trying to sabotage his song and John is really mad that Paul's making them play it, but... They both know a good sound when they hear it, and they're able to put everything else aside because they're so obsessed about the music. That, to me, is like the really, you know, just the beautiful part of that story. But also hearing the, the outtake on, on the new edition of the White Album, and it's like, yeah, actually, it wasn't very good with, without that piano intro. It really needed that. I don't know. I always really like the anthology version um, that's a little bit more thing, yeah. sort of like bossa nova-y. And I love the Easter demo version, which, you know, which really rocks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think we just justified it three ways, didn't we? Exactly. Justify our love, yes. <laughs> Justify my love, another song about Mart Stein. Oh, my God. It absolutely is. You know, <laughs> they, they actually did uh, take a train from London to Rome or Paris to Rome. I have to go back to Justify My Love and get through those lyrics again, but we can well, figure we all to... about Mark Stein. Well, we have a few weeks before the Mark Stein episode, so we'll all bone up a little. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is great. This, is, this has been such a joy. Yes, and our last question, which just came about 20 Ooh. minutes ago, we have one more. Uh, How came, came from uh, Twitter user David Hurl, and he said, what is the essential reason why just the presence of the other in the band made each of Lennon and McCartney reach such transcendent heights. Wow. In a way, that's kind of what we've been talking about the whole time. To having the other one in the room really brought out their not just their competitive spirit, but their collaborative spirit. And they really wanted to impress each other more than they wanted to impress anybody else. And that's something you can definitely hear all over the White Album, even though they're all on their solo songwriting trips. But, oh man, they are so eager to, you know, to, to dazzle each other. That's one of the the central themes, I think, of the Beatles in general. It's like, it only really works when there's four, four halves of a whole. Four halves of a whole? Four parts of a whole. That's not how math works. I like four halves of a whole, though. <laughs> I love that, too. Yeah, that was going to be their last movie, but then they didn't make it. Four halves of a whole. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a hole in me pocket. <laughs> 
Love it. Well, thank you so much. So oh fun. my God, this has been such a joy. Seriously. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Uh, before you go, how can people connect with you online? RobSheffield.com. And there's also um, Rob Chef on Twitter with two Fs and Robbie Chef with two Fs on Instagram. RobSheffield.com is, is pretty much where to go. Awesome. This has been so great, Rob. Thank you so much for, for coming on and, and nerding out with us about the Beatles. Yeah, this was super fun. <laughs> Thank you, and, NBC, the Beatles. Oh, my gosh. You guys are the best. Aw, you're the best. No, you're and the, the best. Real joy to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you too. And well, I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Absolutely. All right. Take care, Rob. Talk to you later. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. And that wraps up our second episode of Beatles Book Club. Thank you, as always, for listening to Because the Beatles. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening right now, and give us a rating review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond, including the complete Beatles. Yeah, I can't wait to watch that. And uh, we'll have more from Rob, I'm sure, on some upcoming episodes. Uh, thank you so much, Rob Sheffield, again, for guesting and for talking to us about the Beatles. It was the most fun time yes, we've ever had. Yes, this was the best episode. Thank you so it was much. <laughs> highlight, for sure. And uh, stay tuned for the next episode of Because the Beatles. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.